Well, church family, I'm excited about where we're headed today as we continue our One Another study series, as you see it there on your note page. This is our summer project, I guess you could call it, and this is our fifth venture into taking a closer look at the collection of some 40 One Another admonitions that are found on the pages of our Bibles. We have gathered them all together for you in one handy place there on the back of your note page, highlighting the ones that we've already looked at so far, as well as the ones that we're going to be looking at today. And why are we tackling the one another's of Scripture this summer? Well, when a discussion unfolds about the ways that a church, any church, can become stronger and more effective in living out God's kingdom purposes in the community where it finds itself, it is interesting to notice where those discussions often go. We can be more effective if we offer a more creative worship experience, someone says. Or we need to think about enhancing fellowship and making the newcomer feel super welcome. Somebody else says, no, we've got to concentrate on outreach events. And somebody else says, no, you know, if our midweek life group ministry is rocking, evangelism will take care of itself and people will be sharing Jesus. And then somebody else says, hey, you know, if our children's and youth ministries aren't hitting home runs, young families won't be here. And certainly don't forget about the nursery. What about a short-term missions project to enlarge our worldview, says Bob Lee, chair of our missions team. Do these things, and we will be, as a church, stronger, more effective kingdom contributors. That's what many think. Now, none of these are bad discussions to have. They are conversations that need to happen. But let's remember Jesus' prayer on the night before he went to the cross to pay our sin debt, yours and mine. And he was buried and he rose the third day, victorious over death, sin, and the grave. That night before the cross, he prayed in John 17, verse 20, Heavenly Father, make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. Make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. How will an unbelieving world know that Jesus is real and difference-making and that he can change lives now and for eternity and make them even more than we ever imagined that they could be? The answer is pretty clear. When those who are his are one, then the world will know. Loving God, loving Jesus, loving one another. It's interesting. So what does loving each other look like? Well, it looks like these 40 things listed on your note page. One anotherism, not individualism. The words we, us, and ours replacing the words I, me, and mine in our thinking, in our conversations, in our actions. I'm praying for one anotherism to invade this place so that not only will this be a more joy-filled place to hang out in and be a part of because our relationships are healthy and real and working in ways that are rich and meaningful, but I'm praying for one anotherism so that Idlewild will know that God sent Jesus. If we are one, they will know. They will know. And that's why, Lord, make one anotherism the air that we breathe and the way that we think and live and do what we do. Amen and amen. So what one another are we going to take up today? Well, we aren't taking up just one. 
but two today. They're both found in a single verse that comes out of the New Testament book of James, chapter 5, verse 16. It reads like this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess to and pray for one another. Well, your Bible is open to James chapter 5. Let's pick it up at verse 16 or verse 13 for the larger context of what these verses are going to say to us today. James writes and he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then comes our verse, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And we're going to stop right there since that's as far as we can go. That's the end of the book of James. Now, obviously, the topic of prayer is central to this passage. And if you did not catch it, there is a very definite progression in what James says here. And we don't want to miss that. There is a widening, a widening, enlarging prayer circle. And enlarging that circle until it touches every person in the church. In verse 13, if you are suffering or you are in trouble, the you there being singular in verse 13, you should pray. You pray for you. Then in verses 14 and 15, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church to pray over you, which enlarges the circle of prayer to include the leaders of your church who have primary responsibility for the welfare of your church family. So you enlarge the circle by that much. But then you notice that James doesn't stop there because in verse 16 he says, Pray for, the, for one another so that you may be healed. And so what begins as an instruction to individuals gets widened so that the privilege and responsibility of prayer ultimately falls to everyone in the church. Pray for one another so that you, being plural, may be healed. Now, there isn't one of us in this room who does not need to be challenged to think today about the place and the role of prayer in our lives and in our relationships with each other. You probably already know this, but this section of James has been a bit of a battleground for serious Bible students for centuries. Various religious groups come to these verses to support their particular practices. From this passage, for example, Roman Catholics find their support for the sacrament of last rites as someone is dying. Others, faith healers, use James's words to teach that all sick Christians can be healed through the prayer of faith. 
It says it right here. They will be healed. And still others see here a directive to anoint the physically sick with oil. And of course, joined to these various practices are many questions that come to our minds as we simply read the, the text. What kind of suffering is James thinking about in verse 13? What is the sickness that James is speaking about in verse 14? Are the prayers of the elders in a church somehow different from the prayers of other Christians, more powerful and able to bring physical healing in ways that the average Christian and his prayers can't? What's the anointing with oil business all about in verse 14? What is the prayer of faith and, 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 and the statement that it, it, it always restores a sick person? Is that true? Am I supposed to go public with my sin, confessing it to everybody? Verse 16. And what does an illustration about rain in verses 17 and 18 have to do with all this? You're thinking to yourself, man, if, if, if he tries to answer all those questions, we're going to be here a long time. <laughs> well, it won't be as bad as that. But one thing is for certain. If we don't pay very careful attention to the context in which these verses live, we will miss our best chance at understanding this passage correctly. As you well know, God's word suffers greatly at the hands of many well-intentioned Christians because verses and passages get taken out of context or the context simply gets ignored. I had a seminary professor who was fond of saying, a text without a context is a pretext. It's something of your own making. We want to be good students of Scripture and remember context, context, context. So to that end, let's recall, first of all, who James is writing this letter to. He's writing Jewish Christians who were once part of the church that he pastors in Jerusalem, but they're not part of his church anymore. Because of intense persecution, these Christians began to face in Jerusalem, many have fled, and they're living in various places scattered around the Mediterranean world. And because they're not only Jews, but Christians now, it is in a, in a mostly non-Jewish, non-Christian world, they have continued to face persecution even after leaving Jerusalem. And so James writes this letter with the thought in mind that it's going to be circulated widely among these scattered faith communities. And he writes the letter because he has heard that some are thinking about tossing in the towel and walking away from their faith. While others are keeping the name of Jesus, but they're not living like the Christians that they claim to be. And James is saddened by all of this, and he's concerned. And so this letter then is his impassioned call to these weary followers of Jesus to stay the course. Hold on tight to Jesus. Live out your faith tangibly, and whatever you do, don't give up. Don't let the spiritual battle you're fighting, though it is tough, take you out. And to that end, for four and a half chapters now, he has offered practical suggestions for how these believers can keep that from happening. And now as he wraps up the letter, he offers one final practical suggestion for the battle. And what is that? Well, it's prayer. It is as if James is saying, brothers and sisters, you will never win this spiritual battle that you're in. You will never stand up against the persecution you're facing for Jesus' sake if you are not praying for yourself and praying for one another. Seven times in six verses, he uses the word pray or prayer, 
calling these struggling, professing Christians to make sure that they are in regular conversation with the God of the universe. So James's focus in this context is on the casualties, Christian brothers and sisters coming off the spiritual battlefield, the persecuted, the weak, the potentially defeated men and women who have professed faith in Jesus, but never, but, are, but, but they're now wondering, man, is this all worth it? Do I, do, I, do I keep going? If you look again at verses 19 and 20, they confirm for us that this is James's thinking. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James's concern, as it has been from the very beginning, is with potential spiritual casualties. People he loves and cares about who have professed Jesus but are now dangerously close to wandering from the truth. James is speaking directly to the spiritually weak, the spiritually weary, the spiritually exhausted, the spiritually discouraged, and engaging the power of prayer to come to their aid. If we don't see this and we don't keep this in mind as we work our way through this passage, we will miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here. To say it another way, James is not thinking about physical illness or physical healing in these verses. To drop a discussion about physical healing for physically sick Christians here in this context simply does not fit. Nothing that comes before verse 13 or after verse 18 goes in that direction. But there is plenty to suggest that the spiritually weak, those battling spiritual exhaustion, discouragement, and possibly sin in their lives are in view. And it's James's conviction that prayer can and will really help these brothers and sisters if they will avail themselves of it. Well, that said, James asks in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Maybe your version says, is anyone of you in trouble? If so, he should pray. The word suffering or trouble here literally means to be in distress, a, dis a distress from which there is no immediate relief. In other words, you won't be getting out of this one anytime soon. The word suffering here is the exact same word that we find three verses earlier in verse 10. And in that verse, James says, Hey, you guys, hang in there patiently, even though you are suffering undeserved mistreatment by evil people. Again, James is not thinking about someone who is suffering physical illness or disease. That's just not in view. His concern is for Christians who are being persecuted, abused, and treated badly by wicked, Jesus-rejecting people. And he says, man, when you're in that kind of a situation, you, brother or sister, you have to be praying for you. You've got to be praying for yourself. Prayer is your lifeline when you're doing spiritual battle. Prayer is your life preserver when you're suffering or trouble has tossed you into a stormy season. Where else can we go but to God, fellow Christian, in such times? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul describes God as the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. 
the very same word that James uses here. Peter will write in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxiety on Him, on God, because He cares for you. How do we do that? How do we cast our anxiety, our anxiety on God? Through prayer. From inside the great fish that swallowed him, Jonah prayed, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. When you're in the belly of a fish 20 leagues under the sea, I'm guessing that prayer is what you do. In Psalm 40, verse 1, David, during a time of great spiritual difficulty, says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry, my prayer. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. James says, Christian, are you in trouble? Pray. You pray. You have to pray. And then James runs to the other end of the life experience spectrum and he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. In the hard times, pray, but when it's all good, pray then too. And that word cheerful was carefully chosen by James. It means being cheerful in your spirit, having a joyful attitude. It's not talking about our physical well-being. At those times when it's all good, James would say, that's a great time to pray, and your prayers will be in the form of thanksgiving and praise. Unfortunately, fellow Christian, we don't always do this well. Are we as eager to say, thank you, Father, as we are to say, help me, Lord? I'm reminded of uh, the ten lepers in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus heals all ten of them, but only one comes back to say thank you. And and Jesus there is is visibly and noticeably saddened by the fact that only one comes back to say thank you. Sometimes we forget that. That it is to be a, a large part of our prayer conversation with our Heavenly Father, this, this, this saying thank you. He loves to hear our gratitude for His kindness toward us. And I hear James saying, there should be a balance of praises that go with your petitions. Pray for yourself. Don't fail to do this when you're suffering, and when it's going great. And then come, then we come to verses 14 and 15, and the call to let the elders pray for you as well. And with these two verses comes no small amount of confusion and head-scratching and puzzling, which is why I have gone to such pains to stress the context, brothers and sisters, because of the misunderstanding that surrounds these two verses. Is, any, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We'll stop there for a moment. Now, just a casual read of these two verses would lead us to think that James is teaching him that physically sick Christians can expect physical healing through the prayers of the elders of their church. Now, there's no question that prayer for the sick and the physically afflicted, afflicted is appropriate and it is supported by Scripture. Many places. But, brothers and sisters, not here. To go in that direction is, again, out of step with the context. James is deeply concerned about these professing Christians who are spiritually weary, spiritually beaten up, 
spiritually discouraged, and seriously they are toying with the thought of walking away from their faith. He is thinking about the spiritually sick, not the physically sick. These battle-weary, persecution-weary followers of Jesus need desperately to draw upon the powerful resource of prayer, in this case, prayer offered by their church's leaders. Someone says, you know, Tim, when verse 14 says, is any one of you sick? That seems pretty straightforward. Hmm? Perhaps. But it is helpful to know this about the Greek word for sick that James uses here. It's the Greek word astheneo. Eighteen times in the New Testament, mostly in the Gospels, it is translated sick, and it clearly refers to people who are suffering from various physical afflictions. But the exact same word is also used 14 times, almost as many times, mostly in Paul's letters, to refer to emotional or spiritual weakness. And I've given you some of these passages there on your note page so that you could look those up and, and chase down the other use of this Greek word. All that to say, the word can be accurately translated as either physically sick or spiritually weak, depending on the what. Yes, the context. So let me ask you to look at just one example of where this Greek word, astheneo, is translated weak or weakness. If you'll keep your finger tucked here in James and run to the left in your Bible until you find 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when you get there, find verse 7. This is Paul's well-known thorn-in-the-flesh passage. In verse 7, after Paul has talked about the fact that he has seen some amazing visions, he has actually been able to see things that are in the heavenly realm, he writes these words beginning at verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Literally, it reads, a stake for my flesh, a stake driven into me, he says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul never tells us what the thorn is, but the source clearly is from the spiritual realm and from Satan. And whatever it is, it is really tough. It's very hard. The thorn, he says, torments him. And notice he how he describes what resulted from having this storm, this thorn. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Astheneo is the Greek word. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my astheneo, my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now watch this. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in astheneo, weaknesses. And then he elaborates on what those weaknesses look like. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. The very things that James is thinking about in chapter 5. I delight in these things, he says. For when I am weak, astheneo, then I am strong. And I'm strong because Jesus' power is revealed in me and through me more at those times. That's what Paul says. The weaknesses produced by the sufferings of life, not physical sickness, but the sufferings of living in this fallen, 
Satan energized, hostile to Jesus' world, drive me to a greater dependence upon Jesus. And for that reason, I welcome these asthenao, these weaknesses. Now, hold on to that understanding as we go back to James. There is nothing in the context to suggest we should understand asthenao as referring to physical illness, physical sickness. But there is plenty to suggest that we understand it as spiritual weakness. And by doing so, these verses really come to life and they fit. They work. Is any of you spiritually weak and defeated? Weary? Deeply discouraged? Life and people have beat you up and you are on the verge of wandering from the faith altogether? Remember that in verse 20? And you can't even muster the strength to pray anymore? in your asteneo, in your weakness, then, then call the elders of the church to pray with you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. James would say it's at this moment when a Christian is on the verge of just throwing up their hands and saying, what's the use? That they need to find just enough resolve to call for the help of their church leaders. This is, this is when the spiritually weak need the prayers of the spiritually strong. And James's assumption is that an elder should, shouldn't even be an elder if he doesn't have his spiritual life in order, isn't walking in obedience and fellowship, isn't spiritually solid and strong and grounded and living in prayerful dependence upon God. So he's the person that the spiritually weak should call upon. Call for the elders, James says. They will come and lift you up to the Lord since you're struggling to do that for yourself. They will do that with you and for you in prayer. And James is a pastor. And he's encouraging the wounded, exhausted, spiritually worn out members of the flock to go to their spiritual shepherds who will intercede for them and ask God on their behalf for renewed spiritual strength, energy, and endurance. In these weary brothers and sisters' lives, this is not a time for the elders to be lecturing on the deeper walk. It's not a time for the elders to be teaching a list of 10 things to do to get your spiritual act together. Now, these disheartened, discouraged, crushed Christians just need to be prayed for. It is one of the most practical things that the elders can do when this desperate cry for help comes. And you, and you can see, as I can, that following this admonition from James... Though the words one another aren't in verse 14 or verse 15, this, this practice of calling upon the elders fosters a spirit of one anotherism within a church family. The flock is calling its leaders to pray for them. There is a coming together in that that is healthy and, and helpful and promotes one another. It promotes one anotherism. So it fits. And, and, and then the oil that is mentioned as being rubbed on the weak and discouraged brother or sister, it probably serves as a visual aid, as a symbolic reminder for that, that weak brother or sister, the oil often being symbolic of the Holy Spirit and his ministry of comfort. So it's just a, a way for the spiritually weak person to have this, this kind of a practical object lesson, the, 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 the prayers being made real in this, this kind of... Um, in this kind of way. 
And so the presence of the Lord is symbolically being represented by the oil. And with it, the elders, as they pray, and the weary brother or sister is being prayed for, they are reminded by the oil that this sacred prayer moment is all about God and about his power and his desire to lift up and bring spiritual healing. It's not about the elders. It's not about their prayers. It's about the God who answers these prayers. And so it takes the focus off of the elders, I believe. The oil does that. They pray, but the Holy Spirit does the work. And that really comes out, I think, in verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, the one who is spiritually weak. The Lord, the Lord will raise him up. As we all know, physical healing is not always the perfect will of God for his people. But spiritual healing, spiritual renewal, and health and wholeness, new strength and resolve to stand firm in the faith, well, that would always be on God's heart. That he would always want to answer that prayer. To add even more strength to our understanding that these verses are not referring to physical healing but to spiritual restoration, James even adds this thought. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Most of the time, when someone comes to a place of spiritual discouragement and weariness of the kind that James pictures here, where even praying is impossible, there often will be some form of sin involved. Not always, but often. Even if it's just the sin of focusing on self or, or doubting God or cursing others for the pain and the suffering uh, being experienced that those persons are causing. And so James says, look, if you call on the elders to come and pray, that reflects a broken, I need God kind of heart. And God never rejects that kind of a heart. In Psalm 51, verse 17, David says, a, a broken and contrite oh." heart, O Lord, you will not despise. And the mere fact that, that someone would humbly call for help, call out for the elders of their church to come and pray over them because they're just spiritually weak, speaks of a broken, repentant heart. And the sin will be forgiven because the heart is broken. In fact, part of an elder's responsibility is not only to pray in this hard time in a brother or sister's life, but also to encourage confession to help this weak and discouraged believer discern the presence of sin if it's there and, and bring that to the Lord. And when that done, is done, the sin is forgiven. Now, I know this approach to verses 14 and 15 runs counter to what many of us have understood James to be saying our entire life. We've only heard it taught in the context of physical healing. And I'm just going to say to you, I am totally comfortable with you and I agreeing to disagree on this. It's not a hill we need to die on. But I do believe that this approach fits the context. As I said earlier, praying for the sick is something we can do anytime. But praying for the spiritually defeated is a special responsibility laid on the church leadership. And James would say it is a resource that God's people should avail themselves of much more than they do. But James does not stop there. Because what he does next is enlarge the circle of prayer one more time to include all of us confessing to and praying for one another. Again, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Although this should probably be obvious by now, <laughs> the healing James is thinking of here in verse 16 is not physical healing. He's not saying you are physically sick because you have sinned and you need to confess your sins so that you can be restored to health. No. James is thinking of spiritual restoration, spiritual healing. The spiritual fracture that sin always brings into a believer's relationship with holy God is mended when there is genuine confession of sin. And that confession of sin can take place just between the sinning Christian and their God. Through faith in Jesus, we have direct access to God 24-7, 365. We don't need a priest. We don't need some other human mediator when we confess our sin. We don't need someone uh, who is an earthly go-between between us and God for sins to be forgiven and fellowship with God to be restored. Our proof text for that would be 1 John 1, 9. makes it airtight clear. If we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. But James has something else in view here. And that is the incredible help for every Christian that comes from having a few well-chosen, trusted, open, sharing, praying relationships with other Christians in their church family. Guys with guys and gals with gals. Because that will help keep us from bottoming out in our spiritual life. Confess your sins to one another. Confess them to God, who alone can forgive them, but confess them to one another too. And what that does is it exposes us for the fragile, weak sinners we really are and invites a trusted friend to go to battle for us in prayer in a focused way. James knows that sin loves to hide. It likes the darkness. It wants privacy. The very opposite of the one anotherism that Jesus wants for his church. James understands here that a Christian is never more vulnerable than when they're trying to live in isolation or in secret with their sin. And he's saying, brothers and sisters, don't let that happen. When confession of sin is actually happening in a church family between trusted friends, it makes the church a safe community for sinners rather than an unsafe congregation of pious-looking saints. And that's huge for all of us because sinners is what we all are. In a church where there is confession of sin to one another, we are given the freedom to be vulnerable and honest and who we really are rather than pretentious and, and hypocritical and somebody that we're not, each of us trying to keep our halos on straight. We get to be who we are when we put into practice this one another. We get to be sinners who are saved by grace and prayed for by a brother or sister because we have let them know that we are struggling in an area of our life with regard to sin. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor executed near the end of World War II, I believe hit it right on the head. He argued that confession of sin by one Christian to another, joined with focused prayer for the confessor by a brother or sister, constituted what he called the breakthrough to fellowship for a church family. He writes, Confession brings sin to light where it is exposed and then covered by the grace of God. Where sin goes unacknowledged, grace remains untapped. An abstract idea that does not touch or transforms our lives. 
We must confess our sin in the presence of a brother or sister in Christ because it breaks us of our self-righteousness and enables us to become a fellowship of sinners. We become the church that is founded on Christ's righteousness and not our own. Man, that is good, isn't it? A fellowship of sinners founded on Christ's righteousness and not on our own. That's what happens when we confess our sins to one another. And that grows one anotherism. So we find a few trusted brothers or sisters and we enter into what we would call today uh, an accountability relationship. And that's really what James is calling for. Our confession of sin is not before the whole church. It's, it's not everybody coming up on the platform here on Sunday morning and saying, this is what I did, this is what I didn't do. It's not, not putting our sins in the bulletin for everybody to read, but, it, but it's something we do in the setting of a safe, trusted relationship. There we admit to our friend where our battles are, what we're tempted by, and what temptations we have not successfully fled from. Then in love and with understanding, our friend prays over us, prays for us, bringing us before the throne of grace and asking for God's protection against Satan's schemes and our own fleshly vulnerability. They pray for our enabling and for strength and for encouragement. They pray for joy and peace that will come from walking in obedience and trust. And that relationship, knowing that our prayer friend will be asking us how we're doing in these areas, that we have confessed, well, that will further help us as well to say no to that sin because we know we're going to be asked by our friend. It brings a godly pressure upon us to forsake that sin, to turn from it. So it's really healthy to confess our sin to one another. I have maintained ongoing accountability relationships with a couple of men whom I meet regularly with, not because I'm trying to obey verse 16, although that happens, but simply because in doing that, being in these accountability relationships, it helps me stay in step with Jesus. And this is not an overstatement. Those whom I have known who professed Christ and then went off the deep end spiritually always precipitated their plunge by isolating themselves from the body of Christ and from close Christian fellowship. Do you have someone who you can confide in, take your spiritual struggles to, Invite them to pray for you, and you provide the same for them. I sure hope that you do. The Holy Spirit is calling us to such through James today. James would want us in such relationships, not only for our good, but because it helps to make us one. And that is how the world will know that Jesus is the real deal. Doing verse 16 grows one anotherism in a church family. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, thank you for taking us into this place this morning and James would say earlier in his letter that uh, we are not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of it. And that's what we would want to be. And so we ask you to take your precious word, trusting you, Lord, that we have handled it correctly today and applied it properly. And 
viewed it in its correct context, we ask you now simply to to give us, if we do not already have that one or two or three trusted friends, give them to us that we might confess our sin and be prayed for and might hear the confessions of a dear brother or sister and pray for them as well. To the end, Lord, that your church is made stronger, that our relationships with one another are made uh, in a stronger bond as well, and that the world then would know that you, Jesus, came. We ask it in your name, for your glory. Amen and amen.